Hey there, welcome to Takeaway with Sam Okus, a podcast from Nations Restaurant News. I am Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief here at Nations Restaurant News, and this is the show where I give you an all-access pass to the restaurant industry's most influential decision makers. This week, I'm talking to Sophia DeLeon. She is the founder of Philadelphia-based El Mercury. It's a two-unit fast casual serving Central American foods like pupusas, tostadas, taquitos, and churros. Sophia has this great entrepreneurial spirit, and as an emerging operator who is still very much in the trenches with her restaurant, she has this great perspective on how to get scrappy and creative in dealing with all of the challenges that the restaurant industry has been facing lately, including the pandemic, labor, supply chain, and inflation. Before I jump into that conversation with Sophia, remember that there are many other ways you can engage with NRN's award-winning content. Not only can you subscribe to our monthly print edition and daily AM newsletter at nrn.com slash subscribe, but you can also subscribe to NRN's other podcast, Extra Serving, where our editors discuss the hot button issues of the day and we share interviews with a wide variety of restaurant personalities. On this week's episode, I join our editors, Leanne Zinsmeister, Holly Petrie, and Ron Ruggles for a conversation on Domino's troubles finding delivery drivers and Wendy's success with the breakfast day part. There's also a great conversation between Ron and Subway CEO, John Chidsey, that you do not want to miss. Also, I am really excited to share that NRN is taking our podcasts on the road. Next week, that is March 6th to 8th, we're going to be in Austin, Texas at COEX, an annual conference put on by the International Food Service Manufacturers Association, or IFMA. And just a couple weeks after that, from March 20th to 22nd, we will be in Dallas for the Women's Food Service Forum's Leadership Conference. At both of these events, we're going to have a podcast lounge set up for welcoming guests for live interviews. We'll be sharing those both here on the Takeaway feed as well as on Extra Serving. If you're going to be attending either of those events, please do come say hello and maybe you will make it onto the podcast. Of course, follow along by subscribing to both Takeaway and Extra Serving to hear exclusive in-person interviews with some of the most interesting leaders in food service. All right, jumping now into my interview with Sophia DeLeon founder of El Mercury. And don't forget to stick around after the interview as I will share my five takeaways, actionable insights that you can take with you on the go. Sophia DeLeon of El Mercury in Philadelphia. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat today. Sophia, tell me about this brand. You've got two locations in Philadelphia now. What is this brand all about? So thank you for having me, Sam. Uh, I started El Mercury four years ago. Um, I'm originally from Guatemala and my goal was always to have something that would represent where I came from. Um, you know, I, I was working, I moved from the U, from Guatemala to the U.S. Uh, 15 years ago and initially I started working in corporate and uh, I did an MBA and I thought, you know, I wanted to climb the ladder and just like do the corporate lifestyle and I hated yeah. it. And then <laughs> The political lifestyle was changed. The political landscape was changing, and there was so much negativity towards like bad hombres and like and immigrants, and especially Central America. Mm -hmm. um, so I quit my job, and then I I started with series of pop ups and doing catering, and just 
I just wanted to see something that would kind of speak to like the Mayans, the Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, these small countries like that were called the shithole countries that mm-hmm. actually had, I actually don't know if I'm able to say that, but. Sure, no, you can uh, say whatever you want. <laughs> but, you know, uh, just like these little countries that had so much bad rap in the media, but they had so much to offer. Yeah. And just bring it to Philly. And, you know, there, because there's so many Mexican and Italian and pizzerias and a lot of the same. So, like, I wanted to showcase that we, even as small countries, have a lot more to offer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I started in Mercury 2018, opened the first brick and mortar um, in the Rittenhouse area in Philadelphia. And um, we started with foods really based on what the Mayans used to eat. So uh, our staples are corn, chilies, beans, and chocolate. And that is all that's on the menu. So we have pupusas from El Salvador. Um, we have tostadas from Guatemala. We have taquitos. And then we have a churro bar um, where we make just churros from scratch and serve them with ice cream based on uh, on, on traditional Latin American um, desserts. So like we have a tres leches nice. churro, for example, that we put like the three milk mix and torch meringue and then serve it over vanilla soft serve. And that's probably our number one seller. Wow. Um, and yes, fast forward to last year, we opened our second location and uh, we're hoping to continue growing and, and to put Central American food on the map. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about going a little bit um, backward a little bit here in terms of when you decided to open this restaurant, did you come out of food? Why was food the angle you wanted to go out with this? So I did, I always loved cooking, like growing up, I, I, I love cooking and I loved selling stuff. So I was the kid that would make ice cream in sell it at school you know like I always wanted to sell stuff and specifically I always wanted to sell food related stuff so Mm. um I did catering throughout high school I made food for birthdays and uh holidays and sold it to like friends and family and then I moved here and um I worked on the corporate side of food so for example I worked with Kerrygold and Erdes and Herdes and Hormel and um I, I did sales and marketing for those companies. Um, okay. So I was still, you know, like in touch with food. And, yeah. and my MBA is food marketing. Um, and I thought, you know, I wanted to be next to food, just not in food service. And mm-hmm. eventually, I guess, you know, I got called back, <laughs> like my passion. <laughs> and it was like, I just started thinking, you know, like, I don't want to be 50 years old and then look back and be like, what if I had done this? Right. And then just totally regret it. I just, Mm -hmm. I wanted to do it now and like make it work. And if it didn't work, then at least I tried. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. It's a great perspective. Philadelphia has a really vibrant food scene. I know Um, incredible food town, but tell me about the response to El Mercury. I mean, you know, you kind of alluded to this, but I think American the American approach to Latin American food tends to be, well, is that Mexican? Like, you know, they, they know Mexican and often what they think about Mexican is not even totally Mexican. Um, so tell me about what the response to what you were doing was from the Philadelphia community. So I think we've been really fortunate to get a really good response from Philly. Um, I don't know if, you know, if I had opened like say in Miami, if it would have been the same, right? Like, I think that they have really embraced 
the fact that this is a new brand that it's like woman owned minority owned like I feel like people really value those things and the mm-hmm. fact that it's something different and it's fast um and accessible like at a, an accessible price point so you know when I when I opened the mercury I wanted to make it a fast casual um as a, because most people you know you will find like Guatemalan um cafeterias like mom and pop shops um that are maybe geared more towards Guatemalans right um mm-hmm. and I wanted to like open it up to everyone like open it up to the lunch crowd and the corporate crowd and and you know like the the students in like UPenn or like all the 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 schools around us and I think that kind of tweaking the menu a little bit and and making it more open to these types of palettes made it more accessible and and made like Philadelphians a little bit more interesting and interested in it and I can say now that everybody knows what a pupusa is you know I started yeah. having to describe it as like a hot pocket like what's a pupusa <laughs> like so, or what is what is a tostada oh it's a big nacho right <laughs> sometimes I've had to like really dumb it down <laughs> where I'm like okay like like this is you know this is like the closest thing that you can that you can um think of that is like what it, that, that is what the menu is but Oh, yeah. quite, a, quite now, an indictment of the American food scene that you have to describe <laughs> your food like a Central American hot pocket. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So clearly in the pandemic, I mean, we were just talking before I hit record is that I, I, I was so relieved to see that you were doing well because so many independent operators just frankly did not because of unfortunately all the things that were stacked against them early in the pandemic and how hard this was, what was key to you being able to navigate through the last two years and stand on your feet? So I, I, you know, I, my family is, is, is my staff, right? Like I don't have kids. I don't have, you know, like all my family is back in Guatemala and and I knew they were safe. They were fine. But my staff here, they all like, they were either moms or dads or they just, you know, they had a family to support, right? And not everybody qualified for unemployment. So when, like, when, when this shutdown first happened, and we were deemed like essential businesses, I was like, well, we don't have to close, right? Like, we, I don't want to leave everyone on the street, especially if you don't qualify for any government help, right? Like, I come from a, I come from a country where like, you don't expect handouts, like, that's never going to happen. So I knew that like if we were going to make it work, we had to like just keep going and like just literally rely on ourselves and not really rely on like whatever's coming later, like somebody to come and save us. So we just kept going like we we never closed. We did a little bit of everything. We started out by partnering with other restaurants and like bringing meals to the suburbs. We made, you know, um, like family packs. Um, mm-hmm. We did uh, meals for the frontline workers. And then um, the biggest lifeline came when we partnered with World Central Kitchen, which mm. I think a lot of the restaurants that survived probably did the same. Yeah. And, you know, we made, we made thousands of meals for Sunday Law Project, the homeless, again, the frontline workers. And, that really saved us. Like we were really busy, like during the pandemic yeah. and, you know, everybody kept their jobs. We actually, we, we didn't let go a single person and we actually hired like maybe three new people. Wow. Um, so, and people like, you know, the, the, the organizations that we were working with were so happy because we were, 
you know, I think it was like a win-win for everyone, right? Like we were making meals that we wanted to eat because we were so excited that we had a lifeline and that we got to cook. And, you know, they were happy, like these, these organizations were happy that we were making the food because they weren't getting, you know, tuna sandwiches from like right. a bigger corporation that is normally what you would get. Right. So, and then the people that actually received it were so happy because finally they got a meal that they deserved, right? And then you, and then, you know, all of these things like started opening up like, oh my God, there's so much need in Philadelphia. Like if only we could continue doing this work, then maybe we can cure hunger, right? And then we can employ more people and then we don't really need the help from the government. I mean, we, we need it, but in a way, like it, it, it like sustains everyone, like sustains businesses, feeds homeless, keeps jobs. It, it's a win-win. And yeah. I think that that and the fact that like Philadelphians like, basically rallied around us and and still like you know we were close we during the protest we we were actually um we were lo- uh looted and oh we had gosh. people like just create a go fund go fund me for us and uh like come and like sweep and like it was amazing like i think when you see the worst in people like you also see the best in them <laughs> or yeah. like the worst of times you see the best in people so yeah it was crazy um but i Despite all the negativity, like I have like good memories about like, you know, the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what it feels like you're describing to me is, I mean, you're describing that you have a relationship with your community. You have a very um, close relationship with your community, which is incredible. I mean, because that's all you could hope for is that exactly. you have this community that can rally around you and be there to support you. I was watching actually a video earlier. I saw a video of you online that you, um, and you were talking, it was talking about the churro Sundays that you do. <laughs> and you were talking about how you were doing them with some Philly flavor, right? You were trying yes. to represent neighborhoods of Philly. So I guess just talk about the relationship to Philly that you have now thinking about all that you've been through with this city, this community, and how you can kind of give back to it. Obviously, the World Central Kitchen is one way, but other ways in which you reflect that community back to them. Yeah. So once we we stopped the partnership with World Central Kitchen, we continued it with um, with Broad Street Ministry and Prevention Point. And, you know, every now and then we don't make as many meals as we'd like to, but we, we still continue trying to give back as much as possible. Like, because again, Philadelphia was with us when we needed it and we need when we needed everyone so now you know we try to be here and like represent it as best as possible I don't think that we would have succeeded like for example I have friends in like other states my brother has a restaurant in Miami and I think that the response was very different and I think about you know like if I had had a restaurant in Miami I don't know if I even would have succeeded like even like within the first like two years so I just think that I never thought that I was going to end up in Philly, but I'm really, really happy I did. Um, I think it's a great city with, I would say, a good amount of diversity and mostly, like, just people curious to learn about, like, different cultures and different things, you know? Yeah, yeah. I want to get in some of the weeds here on uh, what it means to run a an emerging brand such as El Mercury in these times, because, you know, a lot of conversations I have with restaurant executives when you talk about the pandemic, it's all about the the digital pivot and, you know, the adoption of the new fangled, you know, digital whatever. And just thinking for you with two restaurants, like what can you do? What have you done to adapt this restaurant around digital ordering, off-premises service, everything that's going on around us that's been accelerated by the pandemic. How do you respond to that when you have two restaurants? So 
we we actually started you know before ghost kitchens were hot that's how we started like we were a virtual okay. restaurant before that even existed so we started out with grubhub like with literally a name on grubhub and uh, a commissary kitchen and people ordering through grubhub the way that you know ghost kitchens work now like that is how we started so we were digital first if you may like people were mm-hmm. able to order online with us from the start so like i think being a fast casual we were almost in a better position than like you said you know i mean we definitely were than, than a fine dining because <laughs> yeah. our food translated much better for takeout than you know somebody that was there for the experience like you know you, you can still have a pupusa now or you can have it you know in an hour and reheat it if you want or like when you get it, it it's still going to be fine so I think we were in a better position than a lot of other brands um, where we had already adapted our product so that it was delivered um, to customers. Uh, we also, so also before the, mar- the, before the pandemic uh, started, we had planned to open this um, market, more of a market than a restaurant at the, at the writing terminal. Okay. And um you know, when everybody started doing like markets and like selling quarts of things and pounds of things, like we had already planned on that concept and like we were planning on opening it in 2020. And then it kind of, it, it, it was pushed like, you know, like everything we had planned, we were just like, okay, well, we're ready or not. Like, we're just going to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. So we were planning for it um, like before it happened and we were just forced to like like launch it faster than than you know if we'd had like the extra maybe six months um and yeah the second location we opened last year in april so we were i mean i guess the world was a little bit more open and um it's i think it's been great it's it's a balance of market style foods like i said like a dozen taquitos or a dozen pupusas and like salsa by the quart or and also, you know, a churro ice cream and a street corn and both individual and like family style um, ordering. Mm-hmm. So because you were, <laughs> well, because you were like a virtual brand essentially before, I mean, you know, you come into this with a little bit of an advantage in this very digital world that we found ourselves in. Uh, but what did you learn in the two years that can maybe help you going into the future because you, you had that knowledge. And I, I mean, even your background, it sounds like you were probably a little bit more prepared for how do I position this brand amidst all of these changes. So as you come out of the pandemic, I mean, you know, I'm not out of the pandemic, of course, but just, you know, two years in now, we're really literally almost two years here. How does that position you for being able to kind of accelerate out of the pandemic? I would say still with, you know, the online ordering is not going away anytime soon. You know, mm-hmm. we only, all we can do is continue making our product better to travel longer miles. Uh, we were working with the Drexel Food Lab as well to like launch a frozen pupusa. Okay. Um, and we also launched a line of coffee. So we started bringing in coffee um, that we bought, that we buy um, directly from the farmers from Guatemala. So we introduced new things that, you know, could help us grow. And maybe it's like a a little bit, add a little bit of revenue um, that maybe it's not as big, but, you know, anything helps sometimes when you're like in this kind of pandemic situation. And then, you know, armed with all of this knowledge now, 
it was easier for us to start like this new location and it was the first location right because now we, we were going and like you know instead of like tostadas which are probably like say tostadas are like our our least travel friendly item on the menu so like we decided okay we're not going to have that and so we're going to have a baleada which travels better and like you know in this location we get a lot of grab and go so so you know we, we we've changed the menu um and geared it more towards like more travel friendly foods um okay things to like what we're seeing uh consumers do and like order considering How that and considering that, I mean, I imagine you think about growth as, as an entrepreneur, you probably want to continue to grow. And, and so does that make you think about how you grow differently? Because if you've adjusted your business to be more of this on the go travel ready uh, menu items, then do you look for those locations that better facilitate that as well, I guess? Yes. So I would say I have a 1200 square foot location, um, the biggest one, uh, and that has become my commissary kitchen. Okay. And, you know, thanks to that, I was able to open the second location um, where we don't do any prep. So everything, you know, it's like a centralized kitchen. Um, and so the goal is to open maybe two more that are just as small. So that this second location is, is 300 square feet. So it's tiny, um, oh. but it's in the high volume location. So yeah. We, we're just, you know, we're just cooking, like we're just like, say, you know, cooking the pupusa, like frying the churro, um, as opposed to doing prep and like, you know, making sauces and things like that. Everything happens at our main kitchen. So the vision for growth is to grow into more spaces like this, um, maybe an airport or maybe a concession stand at, um, at the stadium where we don't need another bigger kitchen to do prep um because mm -hmm. we still have room for growth at this the first location um and we can just like you know make daily deliveries and then cook throughout the day and then um you know deliver the same experience but without so much overhead because you know what i think what i all of us realize is we don't need these monsters of restaurants like most people for fast casual you just want to grab and go like right. a lot of places open the you know the the, the takeout windows right and like mm -hmm. I almost did that like I almost thought about like just opening one of our windows but we still have like a very big dining area which we use for events like every now and then but really not as much as like as, as I would like to and it's still you know it, it's an it's an unnecessary cost that I think we yeah. can avoid by opening smaller locations, like smaller footprints where we just cook, take like have uh, like all the capacity to do like the online ordering. And um, as long as the experience is the same, like when the customer gets it, it's the same flavor, then I think, you know, it's, it's great. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, thinking about that, I mean, location becomes even more important because, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you lose the dining room, it, which is a great opportunity to create ex an experience, there's lots of restaurants I would drive 20 minutes to, because I know I'm going to spend an hour there, sit there in the restaurant. So if you, you know, don't have a dining room or just have a very small one, it necessitates that high volume of traffic that's going to be there, that captive audience. So how, and it, what's interesting about that then too is, uh, you know, presumably we are getting to a point where COVID's more endemic and we are all used to being in crowds, but, you know, you talk about stadiums there was, that was something that for a year, if you were in a stadium, you were a year out of business. The, yeah. So it's just interesting. I mean, you might, these things must run through your mind. You know, you need to be in that place where you have the high volume, high traffic volume, 
But at the same time, that could be also a little bit more risky should we have another COVID surge and people suddenly disappear. Absolutely. Yes. And I tell you that where I am right now at the Reading Terminal Market, 2020 was terrible. Like it was dead, completely dead. But if you go there now, it's like nothing happened, right? Like there's crowds, like there's, you know, there's, I think there was the auto show that's happening this weekend. And like, you expect people to like barely be able to walk and it's like, Oh, was there a pandemic? (laughs) So, you know, I think eventually we, yes. I I mean, the pandemic is going to be like around us and, and, and we just have to learn to live with it. Like this is, the new normal and we all just have to adapt right and and mm-hmm. to me adapting is a smaller location and a smaller footprint and more um grab and go friendly food more takeout mm-hmm. friendly food of course that's more takeout friendly for your delivery drivers too so you can still do that off-premises piece of it yes exactly yeah. So I, I want to touch on some of these issues that the industry is facing right now. Uh, you know, it's funny. Hey, we rolled from one crisis into labor, yeah. <laughs> which rolled into supply chain, which rolled into inflation. So I kind of want to take these one by one to get your perspective on it from a very hands on operator with two locations, your perspective, much different than a major corporation with different mm-hmm. kind of resources. Let's start with labor. Uh you know, it sounds like your community has rallied around you as a business. Is that also true of labor? Is Have you been able to find the right employees or have you had to take some tactics to, to find those people? So our, our main location, we have an excellent team. It's the team that, you know, has not changed since day one uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, still great team, like basically part of my family. The second location, which, you know, opened last year, was a little bit trickier, still continues to be, to be honest. Um, it has been a challenge. Uh, you know, I, I find people and like, it's, it continues to be a challenge. And it, mainly, I see a lot of need for more childcare services, right? Because, yeah. for example, you know, I have moms and, you know, they were at home and they were, uh, doing uh, homeschool and now they're not, but then they're, you know, there's, there's always, there's always issues like around yeah. kids and childcare and like, there's not enough support. And mm-hmm. this is where the government should be able to come in and be like, okay, like we have A, B, C, D, E options. Right. And like, this right. is, these are the people that can help you. And like, because if you don't have, you know, a family that supports you, a husband, like whatever, what do you do? Right. And, and mm-hmm. you still need the job. So like, I want that it, it's been, you know, it's been a challenge <laughs> for sure. It's been a challenge. Um, I think we are closer now to like seeing again, like the other side of, um, of, of the labor part, but mm-hmm. there's definitely been a lot of people that have changed jobs or left the industry altogether. So I would say there's less candidates and some of the candidates are maybe, less qualified Mm. but there's a few you know diamonds out there that uh that we're trying to find and and i think with time we will how does el mercury become an employer of choice how do you position this as come work for us and not taco bell well we pay people on average like with tips maybe they get like 18 to 22 dollars an hour which is a lot more than they would make a Taco Bell. Um, I also think that the fact that it's, 
I try to be empathetic. I try to give people freedom. Like I want everyone to grow as much as possible. And like we have started a 401k and a profit sharing. And, and again, like the goal is if I grow, everyone grows. Right. Right. And yeah, I think it's more, it's about feeling part of a family as opposed to feeling part of a number. Like you are just employee X, Y, Z, you know, 100. (laughs) Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, unfortunately with the bigger the system, you know, unfortunately for them, what tends to be the case, Mm -hmm. let's talk about supply chain because (laughs) that was your next issue that I'm sure you had to deal with (laughs) as a, I guess I would call it specialized restaurant. I mean, you have probably ingredients that are less accessible than most other restaurants is my guess. Does supply chain, and did you have even especially a hard time to be able to source what you needed to source? We have had a bit of a hard time. Um, we make, so for example, some of the ingredients, so the ingredient in one of our pupusas is Loroco, which is this flower bud uh, from Guatemala and El Salvador. Okay. And uh, for maybe two months, we couldn't find it anywhere. Like we couldn't find it. I had to special order it from Presidente, like this grocery store in Miami. And then they had to ship it here. And then we ended up paying like so much for like each of those cases that I like, you know, I, I was almost like, giving out the pupusas, but I just didn't want to take them off of the menu. <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous. Um, also, you know, the, the prices of everything, like every, you know, things are out everywhere that we've changed our packaging so many times. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I use everything compostable. I don't use any styrofoam and I try to avoid plastic, no straws. Like we try to be as, as environmentally friendly as possible. So like everything that we use like all the containers are compostable we use like little bamboo um forks and knife sets and uh we had to change those like three times like we had to change you know from the number two like cardboard container to this bamboo one to this um like sugar made one to we changed like four times you know the type of container so i feel like i'm so sorry for customers because they were able like Every time when it was like, oh, surprise, new packaging from a Mercury. <laughs> and like, I mean, at least the food inside was always the same, but like, it was always different for at least a good six months. Like we were like just changing and changing. Um, and then bags. So we, we get our, our bags from China. Uh, oh, okay. Our, yeah. Our logo bags, we get them. And you know, what normally would have taken three months, um, took eight months. So mm. we had no bags for about four months. Um, like the normal, you know, brown bags, but okay. yeah. <laughs> like I was going to say, how bags, do you give your food out? <laughs> we just have to use brown bags. Like the only, I love our branded bags so much. And like, I worked so hard to get them. And then finally, you know, they, when we ran out it was like, Oh no. <laughs> I wish I had ordered with two years in advance, like knowing that this was going to happen, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the export, I mean, exports for a while there, I mean, weren't the borders shut? I mean, so much of what you, if you're, if you're importing things, I imagine that was just such a headache to be able to get so much of this stuff for a while. And, and not just that, but uh, you know, after the borders were shut, um, because I would say there's enough of a supply chain right now that like food was able to come in. Um, it was more like plastic and, and, you know, like, just these kinds of things that were not food, you know, like, like paper goods and things Mm -hmm. like that, that just took longer. And also, you know, when last year, when there was the, 
like the the all the ports were just backed up and so right. everything was just taking forever <laughs> so that's that's <laughs> mainly why our backs took so long because the ports were just so backed up <laughs> It's been an incredible lesson, uh, incredible and frustrating lesson, I'm sure, for you in global supply chains, which, of <laughs> course, you know, here we are with a war in Ukraine. It's probably going to teach you the same thing, right? I mean, we're going to find out that there might not be that direct effect on U.S. as far as supply chain, but the supply chain is global and all these things trickle down. How do you stay ahead of that stuff? I mean, are you just at the mercy of this stuff? So I think that the main way that it could affect us is probably with gas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we, we make deliveries, right. And like we bring food from point A to point B every single day. And so, you know, if we're paying for $10 gas, we just have to adapt. Right. I mean, we, we, uh, we want to do what's best for Ukraine. Like if, if that's yeah. going to stop war, We'll pay twenty dollars for 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 gas, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. fine. Like we'll just make less trips. We'll order more in each trip, and then we'll adapt, right? But like at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, like we want what's best for the world. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, and do you do you have? Could you do bicycle delivery? I mean, you must have a lot of local deliveries. Yes, we do a lot of local deliveries. We we actually were partnering with um uh it's called Sparrow, so it's a local delivery uh company that did just bike deliveries and so we would put it in their system and then they would do like I think one to three miles uh, for like five dollars so it was it was a great deal for us and for the customers (laughs) and it was all you know on a bike so you didn't have to use any car or any any gas (laughs) oh great yeah no that's great all right so inflation I mean then then that's that's the big one that could be a while um all of these things of course being related because inflation when you have cost issues there with your supply and all that um but I mean I guess what I would ask you about inflation is considering the the rising cost of goods considering labor considering all these things I mean how do you stay profitable I mean what what are you doing to try to maintain that margin as all on all fronts you're fighting these things I mean, we've had to raise prices. We there, there's no other way, right? Like we, mm. we were paying initially what like eighteen dollars for a thirty-five um, tub of of oil, like a fry oil, and now we're paying thirty-eight to forty-five. Mm. And we use, we have two, three fry, four fryers, um, and we use. I'm gonna say. 12 of them a week (laughs) so you know that's that's a pretty big cost uh like just overall especially when a lot of our food is fried so I've just had to up all like I we've had to raise like maybe 20 percent of our prices um and and that's the only way that it can be you know like I uh everything is higher so I think people are also like there's been very few people that have complained and I think it's yep. because you see it across the board, right? Like it's, it's, it's expected. Um, and in mm-hmm. fact, if you're not raising your prices, then, you know, where are you getting your ingredients from? Right. right. <laughs> so yeah. it's, I, I think people have now come to expect it. And that is the only way that we can survive. Um, because if we try to, you know, maintain the prices, then, you know, our margins, like just, they're already pretty slim. Like we can't make them slimmer. We go out of business. <laughs> Yeah, if your customers have a problem with it and want to leave, they're going to go to another restaurant who have also raised their prices. So Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes. yeah. All right, so again, you're an entrepreneur. You want to grow. 
do all of these things weigh you down? Do they prevent growth or do you have to just get creative and find a new way to grow? Um, so I think you can see it multiple ways, right? Like some days, to be honest, I feel like I'm burnt out. <laughs> like mm-hmm. some days I'm like, oh my God, so much going on. Like so many things, like just getting pulled out from so many directions that it's like, why am I in this industry again? But then, you know, I'll be like on a shift and I hear people, oh my God, like, are you guys a chain? Like, where else can I find you? Because the food is so good. And then I'm like, like encouraged again, like, oh, this is why I'm in this industry, right? Because I want to share my food with as many people as possible. So I think it's a day to day thing where like, um, our goal is to grow, um, maybe eventually to partner with like bigger potentially funds that can help us scale and like somebody that has scaling experience um that is not me because I think so the way my partner told me that I'm you know there's hunters and farmers right and like you're either a hunter or a farmer and I think I'm a hunter and not a farmer so I just I I need someone to help me farm right and what the farming (laughs) means like growing the crops and like just like multiplying them Mm -hmm. um so I don't know if that makes sense, but, yeah. you know, um, I'm also launching uh, a, a Guatemalan spirit now, a rum. So that's actually my next project. It, it, it started as like a side project. And now it's just like a very big project that is coming in June. Um, you didn't have enough to do. You just thought you would just add that to your plate. Exactly. Like, why not <laughs> just go into a completely different industry like alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> well, you could serve it at El Mercury, right? I mean, could you start up a cocktail line? I can't um, oh, God. because of the antitrust. I'm not actually able to produce a spirit and serve it. And also I don't have a liquor license. Um, okay. Maybe so, someday, no. maybe someday you maybe find a location someday. with a liquor license, you buy that. and Exactly. <laughs> All right. There you go. Never say never. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sophia, to end on a, on a, a high note, let's just talk about, you know, the, the rest of 2022, you're looking ahead, you're looking at growth. What is something you're excited about? I mean, what you, you talk about, you know, why you get up at, at a bed out of the morning to serve your customers who are telling you this is what they, you know, they want your food. What is, what else is something that just gets you excited for what you're doing at El Mercury? So we are, um, so I mentioned that we do churros. So like half of our menu, uh, the sweet menu is uh, churros. And so we pre-pandemic and actually like lately we have gotten, we, we used to do a lot of uh, weddings and uh, mm. we started with churro bar weddings. Like just like, you know, there were the, I don't know, like cupcakes and, and you know, there were okay. several trends of like dessert bars for weddings. And so we started with churros. And um, I found these carts uh, that I'm getting made that travel. And so I'm bringing in two carts now that I'm uh, renting for like special events. So we're going to be the first uh, churro cart vendors uh, in Philadelphia. uh, where We're just going to be making churros to order at like different weddings and events and like just you know, it's like a little bike that has like the churro fryer attached to it and like it can just travel. And so the goal is to just, if it goes great, like to just expand like um, across the Northeast and just do like start, like start um, renting or franchising the churro carts like across the board. <laughs> oh, wow. And that, that could be like your entry into new markets for the brand generally, right? Like you could slap yep. El Mercury on the logo on the bike and then people know what it is and then they want to find your restaurant, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> very smart. Very smart. No, I like that. I'm excited to see your growth, uh, Sophia. And thank you so much for taking some time to chat today about El Mercury. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Sam. That was my interview with El Mercury founder, Sophia De Leon. So what should you learn from this interview? Here are my five takeaways. My first takeaway is that you should find some common ground with your customers if your menu is new to them. It was kind of funny and we laughed about it. Uh, Sophia talking about how, uh, you know, a lot of her customers in Philadelphia were not familiar with Central American foods. And she had to explain them using some very American terms, like talking about how pupusas are like Hot Pockets, tostadas are like nachos. You know, it's funny and also, as I mentioned, a little bit uh, uh, almost embarrassing. But the fact of the matter is a lot of menu items, particularly global menu items, are going to be new to your local customers and you have to educate them. But the good news is that customers are along for the ride and they get it pretty much on their first time. Sophia talked about how El Mercury's customers, they figured it out. She didn't have to do that education for very long. But the fact of the matter is you might start with that barrier. So particularly if you have a global menu, find ways to find that common ground, something that your customers will understand as you're trying to teach them about what your menu items are like. My second takeaway is that in this off-premises world, it pays to make your menu more travel-friendly. Sophia did tweak the menu a lot over the course of the pandemic as she really oriented the El Mercury business around off-premises service. Uh, you know, as she wanted to focus this on grab-and-go, which was became more and more popular for El Mercury, and she realized that that's going to be the future of this business, is more off-premises grab-and-go food. She had to take some things off the menu and put other things onto the menu to really accommodate that fact of what is going to travel well, what is going to still be warm when customers get it, what's going to be something they can eat with them on the go. And she oriented her menu around that. And now she's looking at a lot more off-premises friendly locations and smaller footprints. That leads into my third takeaway, which is that a commissary model can help fuel your growth, particularly into small footprint locations. As Sophia has realized that her growth can be into these small footprint locations like non-traditional locations, for example, the Reading Terminal in Philadelphia where she opened her second location, now she's looking at things like stadiums and other 300 square foot uh, real estate as opposed to maybe 1,000 square foot real estate. She is using the commissary, her first location as a commissary, to be able to fuel that growth, to do a lot of the prepping so that these smaller locations can handle the menu that she wants to do. You might consider this for your own restaurant. If you have a traditional footprint uh, centrally located in a market and you want to expand into smaller footprints, it's particularly those smaller footprints that can do very high volume traffic and where there is a captive audience, consider turning that traditional footprint into something like a commissary so you can handle that. My fourth takeaway is that everyone is raising prices and your customers will probably forgive you for doing it too. You know, you, you might have already done this. You might have already increased your menu prices as you confront inflation and all of the rising costs across the board. The fact of the matter is you don't love to do it. Nobody does. But right now, everybody kind of has to, to deal with inflation. If you've been worrying about it, listen to somebody like Sophia who said, her customers are not complaining. For the most part, they understand why she has to do it, and they're forgiving her for it. Fact of the matter is, they're going into all the, their other favorite restaurants and seeing it too. 
you, you hopefully will get to a point on the other side of inflation where maybe you can bring those prices down. But right now, it might just be something you have to do. And don't worry that your customers are going to leave your business for it because they're probably not. My fifth and final takeaway is that unique store extensions can be great billboards for your growth. Uh, Sophia talked about the Reading Terminal and how it's this great market, famous market in Philadelphia, where she got a second location. That's doing a great job of you know getting in front of tourists and crowds and getting them familiar with the El Mercury brand. But there at the end, she also talked about these carts that she's in investing in to take into cities across the Northeast, where she can have a churro cart that is carried around by a bike, slap the El Mercury logo on there, and then all of a sudden, you have people all over the Northeast who could be learning about this brand. I, I love this idea. This is a very unique brand extension, and Sophia can plant seeds all across these other markets where there will be brand equity, there will be familiarity with the El Mercury brand, and in the future, if she wants to go open brick and mortars in those cities, the, that will have done the groundwork for her to plant those seeds. Those seeds will have sprouted, and she can really, uh, you know, start to reap the what she has sown uh, across those cities and grow there uh, with brick and mortars. Those are all my takeaways for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to Takeaway wherever you listen to podcasts and leave your feedback. You can also email me at sam.okus at informa.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>